0: I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Wednesday, March 7th, 2018. From it's to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. There is horrible weather in New York, so if this sounds a little different, I'm doing it from home. I am hunkered down. I am bunkered down. I am among the hunkered in a bunker. Or maybe... That weird sound is just the giant howling wind in the empty offices of the West Wing with Gary Cohen's resignation. Now, I always thought the problem with the cacocracy was right there in the definition. It's a government by the worst and least qualified. I've been trying to find some silver linings left and right. Like uh, if I told you, you know the phrase addition by subtraction? Well, if I told you that there was an organization and the following people have left, Scaramucci, Gorka, Priebus, Bannon, Omarosa, Spicer, you might say, wow, that's 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 a kick in organization. I mean, they've added a lot by subtracting that horrid list of negatives. It's not actually how it works. Because as Gary Cohen leaves, he was a qualified guy, perhaps at times tried to be a tempering influence on Trump's uh, economic agenda, don't know what he actually achieved. But if I told you, that all these people were gone. All those people, I read perhaps six of the worst people to inhabit this worst-staffed or most horribly and thinly-staffed White House. Here's the problem, and I just realized it. Once there's a cacocracy and people start leaving the cacocracy, then what you're left with is people who are second stringers to the worst people in America. They're the backups To the worst, I suppose at some point there was a car that lost out to the Edsel in terms of what the Ford Motor Company was going to market. There must have been a formula that was just slightly worse than New Coke. There was an actress who didn't get the gig that January Jones booked. And in each of those cases, we don't think of them, but they are the people or the cars or the colas that are worse than the worst. And now running America, that's who we're going to get. They are the replacement players, replacement players. I mean, this level who is leaving, they were already drawn from such high profile positions as being Ivanka Trump's favorite publicist and having been on multiple reality shows that the boss was the figurehead of. Now, who are we going to hire? Will he would just be scanning the message boards of Breitbart or hiring any college sophomore whose dad gave over $100 to the Trump campaign. Or maybe the Trump hiring team is just now scouring Twitter for anyone with deplorable and more than two flags in their handle. I mean, let's think about this guy who maybe you just heard of recently, Sam Numberg. Sam Numberg was hired by Trump. Now, to his credit, Sam Numberg was also fired by Trump. But then he was hired by Trump again and he was fired by Trump again. And then he was hired by Trump again and fired by Trump again. And at least one of these times, it didn't seem like Trump really wanted to fire him, but what are you gonna do? The guy used the N-word willy-nilly on Facebook and and wasn't for nilly. So right now, here's where we are in America. We had a cacocracy, and we're actually in the sub-basement level, looking up at the cacocracy we once had and toasting the good times. Oh dear. On the show today, I spiel about Putting a fun face on tariffs, but first an interesting and fascinating conversation with an expert on gun control who not only has some ideas of what could work, but was right there overseeing the process that did work. So I've said over and over on this show that I feel lucky. I feel blessed, if you will. I reassure my children when they're ever frightened about gun shootings. I don't tell them, don't worry, we'll be safe. But the point I make is we're extremely lucky that we live in New York City. In New York City, with its fewer than 300 murders last year, we are safer statistically than a randomly selected place in the United States. Not a lot of people know that. And the gun crime and gun death level is so low that my children find this reassuring. I don't know why national politicians don't. Maybe they don't want to. Whenever gun control is brought up, they say, look at Chicago. I have said... Well, look at New York. But how did New York City get here? Joining me now is Richard Aborn, who's president of the Citizens' Crime Commission of New York City, was the president of Handgun Control, Inc., now the Brady campaign from 92 to 96. Guess what happened right in the middle of that period? The assault weapons ban was passed. He had a hand in that. Hello, Richard Aborn. Thanks Thanks for joining me. Totally my pleasure. Happy to be here. Okay, let's talk about guns. If I want to get a handgun in New York City, It's not impossible, but how would I go about doing it? It's not impossible,
1: um, but it's tough, and it's it's designed to be tough. So New York City and New York State, if I may, have had perhaps the most effective gun control law in the history of the country since 1911 when the Sullivan Law was passed. And the notion was that before New Yorkers got a gun, there'd be a thorough inquiry into their background— And the reason why they wanted to have the gun, what the gun would be, and to make sure the government knew uh, who was buying the gun and and from where they were buying it. Uh, Most of the state goes through the court systems to impose the Sullivan Law. New York City, from the grant of the legislature, actually uses the NYPD. So, to get a gun in New York, and I, I won't distinguish for our purposes between handgun and long gun. They're slightly different. But, yeah. but the, the main thrust is you got to be willing to expose yourself to a fairly rigorous six month process where you have to make an application, fill out the form, go through a background check, go through some screening, get some safety training, state which gun you want to buy, state where you're going to buy it from. And then once you do all that, come in for an interview. Mm-hmm. And the purpose is not to prevent law abiding. who's doing the interview? The, the NYPD officer. A man
0: in blue. A man in blue. A, man a in blue. uniformed officer. It's a uniformed Correct.
1: officer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the purpose is not to prevent law-abiding citizens from getting guns. The purpose is to make sure that criminals don't get guns. This is, a, I was a homicide DA in this town for many, many years. I went to far too many homicides and saw there was a gun. Yeah. That was the instrumentality of death. What years? I was there from 78 uh, to
0: 84. 84. Yeah. So and, it was bad. It peaked in about 91, 92. But things started really getting really bad. It
1: was really bad. It was really bad in New York then. Yeah. Much. This is a renaissance city. But the goal was not to keep law-abiding citizens from getting a gun, but
0: rather to make
1: sure that criminals didn't get a gun.
0: And guess what? It works. Yeah. It works. So what does the NYPD and New York City do to assess mental illness? What's so we're, their threshold? So we're,
1: we're looking to see whether or not you've had some involvement with the mental health system, mm-hmm. either with a doctor or a psychiatrist. Maybe you've been in a mental health institution. Maybe you've had outpatient treatment. Maybe you've got a history of mental health-related interactions with the police department, that's easy to determine. Maybe there have been domestic calls about you that indicate some sort of mental instability. There are lots of ways to do it. That's why cops do
0: this. They're investigators. Would one call or two calls automatically disqualify
1: you? No, because you don't know what the call is. You don't know the substance. Would being on
0: Prozac or antidepressant. No, 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 no.
1: no. You're going to have to show some erratic signs. No, because lots of people, you know, listen, mental illness is a... A vastly misunderstood disease. Many, many people have it in one form or another. As an aside, there's an enormous intersection between mental illness and criminal offending. We're doing a lot of work around that, trying to tease that out. No, the cops have got to make an assessment. And that's why your cop's doing this. They're making that assessment. In, In
0: different states, in different municipalities nationally, there's a background check, but a background check can mean a lot of things. So what sort of questions might the officer be asking you, or even before you get to sit down with him, what sort of things are they looking at?
1: So they go through the basic background check, which is a nationwide check at this point. Everyone has to do The Brady background check, which we passed right before we passed the ban on assault weapons. And that essentially makes sure that you're in compliance with federal law specifically the 1968 Gun Control Act. And that act says that if you are a convicted felon, a fugitive from the, gov- from the government, from justice, from the court system, um, adjudicated a habitual drug user, adjudicated mentally incompetent, or AWOL from the Army, you mm-hmm. cannot purchase a gun. That's two million people who had a background that prohibited them from having a gun that were stopped because of Brady.
0: When you have a gun in New York City, what are the rules about keeping it, storing it, maintaining it? I believe in New York City, there's some differences in the states. I
1: believe in New York City, you have to keep it locked up. Um, One thing we strongly advocate, and we've actually worked on legislation, is that if you are a lawful gun, owner, even if you're an unlawful gun owner, frankly, keep that gun locked up and keep the ammunition away from it. Now, intuitively, you may say, well, that renders it useless for a self-defense tool. But the reality is you don't want to wake up at 3 in the morning because you hear a noise, pull your gun, and shoot. I will tell you horrifically tragic stories of parents killing their kids returning early from college. Yeah. Just horrendous stories. A kid making noise in the middle of the night because he's up, and the father hears it, grabs his gun, and shoots, and the kid gets killed. Or a 5-year-old brother shooting his 4-year-old brother because they found their mother's gun, and they shot it. Give yourself the 30 seconds or a minute to wake up gather your senses, get the lights on, analyze what's going on, and then make your decision to take out your gun. So we strongly advocate what we call safe storage laws. And they've, had, they've been tremendously impactful in stopping teenagers from committing suicide and cutting down these, these awful tragic shootings that I'm talking about. And that should be nationwide. Yeah, I think uh, 10 states have done it now. Not New York yet. We're getting there. We're almost there. Um, it's, it's close. But we should do that everywhere. How does, is a good, good safe law.
0: How do New York's gun laws affect suicide in New York? Quite a bit, because it's harder to get a gun in New
1: York. We still have gun suicides. They tend not to be in the urban areas. They tend to be in the rural areas, because you have more gun possession, more rifle possession in the rural areas.
0: Um, But people say, uh, if you're going to commit suicide, you're going to commit suicide. But that's not true. It is absolutely not true. So here's why it's not true. I mean, this, this becomes macabre, but the
1: act of suicide is obviously an horrendous act that is often impetuous, particularly with kids. I don't know how old your older kids are, but you know they're impetuous. Mm-hmm. And when they become teenagers, put on your seatbelt, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll be more impetuous. Um, if you give an impetuous kid who's high, in a highly emotional, depressed state a weapon, and they put that gun up and they pull the trigger, it's done. There's no taking that bullet back. They cut themselves. They take pills. They go in the garage. All those things take time, and it gives people time to reflect on what they've done and change their behavior. Not with a gun.
0: Chicago is always brought up as a city that supposedly has very strict gun laws. Of course, they have a huge murder problem. Are Are the gun laws as strict as New York's? Yes, and in some ways, even stricter. But herein
1: lies the rub. Chicago, the city of Chicago, has very strong gun control laws. The problem is Chicago is surrounded by cities and towns that don't, and is surrounded by states that have virtually none. Yeah. So there's like Indiana.
0: A, Gary, Indiana, is an hour away. And, uh, yeah. Just about. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, Ninety minutes. And yeah.
1: and you just you just get outside of Chicago, right? And people are. It's just super easy to get guns. You don't even have to drive down to Virginia as you do from from New York. That's their problem out there. The second problem, and this I know is a bit controversial, but there's very little penalty to pay in Chicago and Illinois for carrying an illegal gun. In New York, you pay a severe penalty for carrying an illegal gun. You look at a substantial time. And we can debate whether or not jail is appropriate or not. Um, in my view, jail is not appropriate for many, many offenses. I ran for district attorney in this town, and I actually said jail should not be being used in many offenses. And in fact, we're not now. But when you make the decision to pick up an illegal gun, you are one step away from a shooting or a murder. Yeah. And we need to take that seriously.
0: So Chicago, it's different. In Chicago, there's slap-on-the-wrist uh, penalties for guns? They, yeah,
1: they, well... There's not a lot of jail time. They get probation. They get diversions. Yeah. And and I fully embrace the idea of helping young people avoid lives of crime. I've spent a good part of my career, and the work we do at the Crime Commission is all about thinking about how you prevent crimes from happening and how you steer people off the criminal pathway. But we do have to make decisions in society. And jail is, unfortunately, an appropriate response for someone that carries an illegal gun. Because guess what? If you get into a fight and you don't have that gun, yeah. you may get into a fistfight, you may even beat up the guy you're fighting with, but you're not going to kill him. But that gun is so impersonal and so fast and so impetuous that that shooting is over often before a kid realizes it. This is all behavioral economics, right? People are not going to engage in behavior if they think the outcome of the behavior is too risky. So when you think you're going to get arrested with an illegal gun, you're going to be looking
0: at state time. We're looking at one to three years. Chances are you're not going to do it. There's an important Supreme Court case about a gun ownership. I mean, a few, but Heller was one. The court weighed in. This was a DC case and said that some oh, lo- I know it well. Yeah, yeah, some local laws wouldn't apply, but then Antonin Scalia had a notation essentially saying, "Yes, but some gun laws could apply." So
1: what Heller said and what and Scalia wrote the decision was actually a little more expansive and the expansiveness is important. The Heller case found for the first time in constitutional jurisprudence in the U.S., that there was some sort of individual right under the Second Amendment to own a gun. The court said Americans do have a right to own a gun in the home for self-defense, and it should be a handgun. Mm -hmm. The court also said that the ability to possess a gun is subject to local law, local rules, as long as those rules aren't designed to prevent people from having a gun in the home. In other words, the rules can't be so onerous mm-hmm. that nobody can get them. The decision also said that highly dangerous weapons, i.e. assault weapons, can be absolutely banned under the Second Amendment. So the, the decision, which is touted by the NRA, as saying, well, everybody has the right to have a gun, is very carefully tailored, very narrowly tailored to a gun in the home for self-defense, and the, and the case explicitly allows us to ban assault weapons, which we really need to do if we're going to go after this mass shooting phenomenon. I mean, we really need to stop this nonsense in America and, and put out crumbs to people, like raising the age to 21. We just, we took a quick look the other day when Trump said this. Yeah, Essentially, yeah. the last 80 mass shootings or mass shooters in mass shootings, I think six were under 21 and none of them had bought the gun. I mean, one, Cruz, yeah. bought the gun. It's crazy, you know, but people don't know the data and they say, oh, that's great. We'll just do that and they'll take care of the problem. It won't take care of the
0: problem. Well, we want to stop the last problem or Trump does. I mean, that's the attention span.
1: Yeah, as <laughs> of, as of, as of uh, Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows yeah. what he's going to say on, on Tuesday? Yeah. Um, so that's why. So we need to get serious. We know there's a direct correlation between the effectiveness of the assault weapon ban and the ban on large magazines and mass shootings. I'll tell you the data. The data is, is crystal clear. In the 10 years that occurred before the ban was in effect, there were 50% more mass shootings than during the 10 year that the ban was in effect. And in the now 12 or 13 years, after the ban has been repealed by the Republicans, there have been 550% more
0: incidents. However, it is true that a very small percentage of gun murders are rifle or long gun or assault rifle murders. But on the other hand, of the other hand, still hundreds of dead people a year.
1: So the NRA, when we were battling this out on the Hill, the NRA would always testify or do shows with me and they say, well, you know, um, there aren't, haven't been that many people killed with assault weapons compared to the total number of people being killed. So I will ask you what I ask them all the time. You tell me the quota. You tell me how many people have to die yeah. before we do something we know that will save those lives. Yeah. And
0: then, by the okay. way, You go tell their families that, well, you know, there just weren't enough people killed. And I can understand that saying that or thinking it's a good talking point from the end of the assault weapons ban for a decade, which is say from like 04 to 15, then Pulse, then Vegas, then... Parkland, before that, the one in Texas, it's be, it's being less true. Like, not only is the point no, that that's true too, one is too many, crimes coming
1: down, but is less actually. true. Right. right? Yeah, actually, I should run that data again. You're right. Overall, murders are coming down in the United States. one right. of my, my big victims. points
0: is, even if we do a fix that doesn't address 97 of the problem, if 15,000 people are killed by guns, three percent of that is 450 more living people. I take that. That's pretty good, right? And the second thing is, we live in a democracy. This infuriates most people. If you can't give a fix, even if it's a small fix, but if you can't get a fix for something that people are passionate about, it really undermines our faith in all our institutions. 100%. 100%. And,
1: and that has its own impact. So in my view, just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we shouldn't do everything we can. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and to quote or paraphrase Voltaire, we should never let the perfect chase out the good because to, to follow this argument that not a single gun control law has stopped all murders yeah. is to say to me then we shouldn't have laws against murder, against rape, against child trafficking. You're never going to stop everything. We live in a system of laws. That's how we try and control illegal behaviors. And to the point of this show, we've been wildly successful in New York in using the various attributes of law, building respect for the rule of law, using police effectively in an open and transparent way, and driving down crime to historic lows. And now we are not only the safest big city, we're the safest city in America. Which is what, over
0: 250,000 over, two, yeah, over two yeah, a quarter million. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. I mean, I, think about that. I heard maybe Riverside, but that's a county. Yeah. I'll take it, but it's a county. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the loss. <laughs> wait a second. Richard Aborn is the president of the Citizens' Crime Commission of New York City, and he uh, ran what's now the Brady Campaign for five years. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. And now, the spiel. One of my favorite podcasts, 538, does a segment called Good Use of Polling, Bad Use of Polling. And I have a poll here from the Suffolk University USA Today poll. And it wasn't a good or bad use of polling. It was just bad answers by Americans. This sometimes happens. They asked the classic question, what are you most concerned about? And jobs in the economy, as it often does, was high on people's lists. 9% cited it. But vaulting to the top of important issues in advance of the upcoming congressional elections were, quote, gun control slash Second Amendment, 12 percent, and school safety, 6 percent. Well, this might be a bad use of polling because gun control slash Second Amendment are really the opposite sides of an issue or opposite ways to look at an issue. This is like saying, well, the two biggest issues are the environment slash I need to extract some more minerals for my smelting plant. And then USA Today and Suffolk, but this was really USA Today's framing, goes on to say that school safety came in at 6%. So if you add gun control and school safety, you get 18% of Americans saying this was their number one issue, a huge and overriding issue. Now look, I, I think it's a big issue. I'm not saying that gun control shouldn't be a big issue, but school safety as the number one issue in America... It's understandable. We live through something horrible, but they're wrong. School safety is not the most important issue in America. The schools are safe. Gun slaughters in schools are relatively rare. I mean, in 10 of the last 15 shows, I've talked about what can be done to make the problem not go away, but more rare. I absolutely, you know this if you listen, I absolutely talk about gun control all the time, but school safety simply isn't the number one issue in America. And on that, Americans are wrong. So here's another poll where just a bunch of Americans were wrong, not even close to most of them, but enough. Morning Consult Politico talked about tariffs, and they found that voters were split on Trump's decision to impose steel and aluminum tariffs. 39% of voters said they support it. 35% oppose it. I think it's a lot more logical to oppose it. I mean, you have a slight not majority of voters, but a slight plurality of voters saying they support it. But of course, overwhelmingly, individuals will be hurt by it. Some might be helped by it, but individually, many, many more people will be hurt than helped. And overall, the economy will be hurt. But here's the just flat out wrong response. 52% of voters believe tariffs will make steel and aluminum more expensive. That is true. 7% said less expensive. No, 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 no. And this gets to the overall insight I have about tariffs. People don't understand economics. People don't understand tariffs. People understand Trump when he says steel, jobs, coal. They understand that. But most people really don't understand what tariffs do, how the economy works, or how they'll be effective. So this means when you're trying to rebut Trump, It's very hard to make a good message when you're trying to talk to the American people with such a low base of knowledge. Here was Paul Ryan, the leading congressional Republican, trying to say he doesn't support the tariffs. He's going for something more. What's the word? Ah, yes. Surgical, particularly China. Um, But I think the smarter way to go is to make it more surgical and more targeted. So I think 232 is a little too broad and I think it's more prone to retaliation. And so what we're encouraging the administration to do is to focus on what is clearly a legitimate problem and to be more surgical in its approach. Now, the problem with surgery is it requires a scalpel. Scalpels are made out of steel. It's going to make surgery a lot more expensive. But the overall problem is not the word surgical or the word steel or the word security. It's just not feeling about tariffs on an emotional level. It's an intellectual issue and it'll certainly hurt people's pocketbooks. And Trump is smart, I guess, to try to connect it to strong things like steel itself or the defense department. But no one really gets what tariffs are. So to this end, I guess Trump tried to be emotional when he talked about, we're going to have a loving tariff. He sounded a little uh, insane, or as he would say, stable genius. But here's what I think they have to do. I think they have to brand the tariffs and have, instead of just this abstract concept of tariffs, you know what I'm going to say, right? You're going to say, talk about an actual steel worker. No, I'm not. I'm going to say, think up a character, call the character Harry Tariff, or on the other end, Albert Umbert Minum. Al-U-Minum. And Harry Tariff And Al-U-Minim could get out there in large, fanciful, icecapades-esque outfits with giant kind of fun theme park heads and talk about the joys of tariffs and how he, Al-U-Minim, wants tariffs. He could even have pet dogs named Smoot and Holly, and they'd go all around the country, maybe they'd get flown there in the presidential jet and they'd make appearances. Hey, it's Harry Tariff. Harry, tell us about the tariffs. And here's my pal, Al-U-Minum. I know in America it's aluminum, but maybe Albert U-Minum could uh, have a monocle and an English accent and say, Right-o, I know it hurts us, but blimey, I'm for it. Isn't that right, Smoot? Woof, woof! And Holly? Holly, stop doing that. We're in public. Now, here's the problem. The aluminum lobby, the biggest aluminum manufacturing group in America, they're actually against the aluminum tariff because it turns out in America, 160,000 people make aluminum, but over half a million people work with aluminum and the people working with aluminum rely on lower priced aluminum. So this tariff to help steel and aluminum manufacturers is actually opposed by one of those industries. Look, maybe my idea for Harry Tariff, and aluminum, isn't reasonable. It's not going to work. People aren't influenced by cartoon characters when it comes to specific policies. I mean, maybe the presidency as a whole, but not on the specifics. So yeah, I'll admit that as much as 7% of people are wrong to think that steel prices are going to come down, I'm probably also wrong that Harry Tariff has any legs. It probably works better than the Paul Ryan version, Sal Scalpel, And he doesn't have two lovable dogs as sidekicks. No, Holly, put that down. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien who says there's a 7% chance that a ban in the importation of cheap lawn darts will cause a massive decrease in the price of lawn darts. Mary Wilson is The just senior producer. She believes that a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun, especially if that good guy is named Australian Prime Minister John Howard. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate podcasts. He's, he's waiting for the tariff on tungsten. He's always the one putting out the hashtag tungsten tariff forever. The Gist. We're not above jokes drawn from the periodic table. Periodically. Oomperoo depperoo peru, And thanks for listening.